Hello and welcome to Music Speaks. This is a podcast dedicated to how music impacts people's lives. For the show, we usually have two co-hosts, myself, Hunter Sagona, and Sean Rimkunis, my friend through the screen with his dapper new glasses. Sean and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge with our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers, and everything in between. Here's a musical quote for today. If you're able to sing what's in your head, you are fully fledged and people will hear you and nothing else will sound like that. Jacob Collier. Now, according to Wikipedia, Jacob Collier uh, was born August 2nd, 1994, uh, 26 years young and is a English musician. He incorporates elements from many musical genres and often features extreme use of reharmonization. In 2012, his split-screen video covers a popular song such as Stevie Wonder's Don't You Worry About a Thing began to go viral on YouTube. In 2014, Collier signed to Quincy Jones's management company and began working on his one-man audiovisual live performance vehicle designed and built at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In 2016, Collier released his debut album, In My Room, which he recorded, arranged, performed, and produced himself in the back of room of his family home in Finchley, North London. In 2017, Collier was awarded Grammy Awards for his arrangements of The Flintstones and You and I. In 2018, Collier began working on Jujesse, a four-volume, 50-song album featuring more than two dozen artists and ensembles. The first volume, which features the Metropoli Orchestre de Jesse Volume 1, was released in December 8, 2018. The second, De Jesse Volume 2, used more acoustic instrumentation and was released in July 9, 2019. In 2020, Collier won Grammy Awards for his arrangements of All Night Long from De Jesse Volume 1 and Moon River from De Jesse Volume Number 2, which funny enough Hunter will be talking about, respectfully. The third volume, De Jesse Number 3, or Volume 3, which Collier describes as being based on electronic sounds, was released on 14, August 14th, 2020. Today, we get to talk to DMA student Jeanette Marie Lewis and Masters Music Candidate Conductor Michael Stern to discuss Jacob Collier's revolutionary music. And without any further ado, let's welcome our friends to the podcast. All right, and we are here with Jeanette and Mike. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> start. Uh, <from> start. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Um, so you've both been on, and we've we've uh, welcomed you back here with open arms after you both had very successful uh, first experiences here on the show. And I know you're ready to talk about Jacob Collier on this deep dive, and. The first song uh, that you guys wanted to talk about was his version of Moon River. And my first question is right off the bat, you know, it starts in a very unique way, not you, you know, not the usual way, obviously that um, Mancini probably would have intended it when he wrote it, but why do you think he chooses to start with this really ethereal and sporadic beginning with all the voices? Either one of you. Yeah. I, I he actually has a couple different versions of it and that one that starts with all the ethereal voices those are actually all clips of people that he's collaborated with 
So uh, Hans Zimmer has a note in there. Eric Whitaker oh. has a note in there. Um, tons of different artists. Pretty much everybody, it seems like, that he's ever met, he requested that they send him a clip of them just singing a pitch. I think it was in some scale. I can't remember exactly which one. But um, he actually does a, a breakdown on his YouTube page where he shows you all of the different uh video clips that he received from people and it's just amazing kind of like this catalog of superstars that he has singing those notes um but the effect it has i think it kind of prepares you you don't necessarily mm -hmm. know what to expect when you start listening to it i mean those who know moon river ahead of time i think already have kind of a preconceived notion of what it's going to sound like and it's really nothing like that and so i think the etherealness of it kind of sets the mood really nicely for the piece and kind of opens you to listen to something in a new way mm -hmm. and what's weird is he actually asked me to sing a note but he didn't ask michael so <laughs> i ended up turning it down because i knew the guilt will live with me forever yeah. <laughs> so he should be very grateful that you, you chose to spare him that agony yeah. <laughs> um I, I think you're very right. It, it does sort of set that tone for the rest of the piece. And something else that the voices do later on when the lyrics finally come in, because it is, it's quite a, you know, a few minutes before the, the lyrics begin, it had been vocalization up to that point. Um, it sounds like riffing, but you know, riffing can sometimes be written directly into a score. Do you know if this is in the original or is it improvised? I don't know that he wrote I don't know he writes most of his music down everything that i see that's written down someone has later gone in and done a transcription mm -hmm. um, i've never actually seen anything that he's written down and just from watching him work um he he does sometimes he'll go live on youtube and reharmonize melodies that people sing him <laughs> sing for sure. him um and a lot of what he's doing is just by rote it's very vernacular there's no like western classical tradition to it nothing's written down he just he listens to it and he says oh this would sound really good here and then he records it and so i i can't i'm no expert on this by any means but my belief is that he probably started with a framework for this and then listened to it and thought i should add this here and then harmonized it and that it, it's kind of a very organic formation of a piece but um yeah i, I don't think it was pre-planned or written down ahead of time. Yeah, and when he performs at his concerts, you kind of get the same feeling that it's crazy because you listen to his music and you think this is so complex. He must have spent so much time writing it down or just like getting it into his brain. But then in real time, he'll do something totally different, equally amazing. And so you're like, okay, he, <laughs> he just gets it and he can do anything he wants at any given moment. <laughs> mm hmm yeah, it's a very, it's, it's almost like an organized chaos is sort of the, the thing that comes to mind, right? Like it's, it's spur of the moment as sporadic as the beginning and yet somehow it may, he manages to pull it all together. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we'll explore this a bit more in some of the later songs too, but so much of that that keeps you on your toes, the spontaneity of it all, I think that that's what makes him so exciting. You don't know what's gonna happen and when it happens, you didn't think you wanted to hear it because you had never thought it could sound that way. Mm -hmm. but then he plays it and it it just sounds unbelievable and it takes you by surprise it's very exciting yeah and on the on the subject of spontaneity 
constant time changes. Like he rarely stays for very for an extended period of time in one time signature. Um, why do you think he chooses? Is is it to keep that sense of you constantly guessing, or is there like a artistic reason? I think <laughs> he wants to explore songs in a way that he can show every single thing that can possibly done, possibly be done with it. And I also think he just wants to show off exactly what he can do and trick you. Like you didn't think that that was going to happen and now it did. And it also keeps you more actively listening, I think. Yeah. I don't know, maybe it's just because we've studied music. I don't know if someone who hasn't studied music would have the same kind of reaction to it. But when we listen to a new song, we're just analyzing it the entire time instead of just listening to it in the background passively. Yeah, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking the same thing. You know, sometimes when I do, like when we have to listen to people's songs that they send in if we don't know it already, very rarely can I ever just put them on in the background. And, you know, I have to be like either looking at the score if they have it on there or like you said, active listening where you're thinking about it. I don't know if Sean feels the same way, but um it does, you know, I think as musicians, our minds are more wired of to want to understand the thought process behind it. And I don't know, I, I mean, it sounds like that's what you were describing. Yeah, and I, I think particularly in the case of Jacob, it's a lot of musicians' music in a mm -hmm. way. There are so many hidden gems there and he has so many layers to his music. My dad, very few musical bones in his body but he listens to jacob collier and he really appreciates it on a surface level he thinks oh that's really cool then like someone who's maybe an amateur musician might listen to it and hear some more layers of that and they think oh that's really cool and then those of us who have been studying music for too long and those who have studied it for even longer listen to it and there's so much content like way down deep like in the structure of the piece um just so many complexities and i think that that's what gets us really excited about it you listen to i mean i, I don't want to make a generic statement but you listen to a lot of pop music that's on the radio and it's very um consumer oriented you can listen yeah. to it on the surface level you listen to it once and you know the song i think with jacob's music every time i listen to a song I, I feel like I'm learning new things about it and I'm hearing new new components of it that make it interesting. And I it's kind of like Easter eggs in a TV show. You know, he leaves little Easter eggs for yeah. to pick up on, which is cool. That's a really that's a good analogy. And just before I pass the baton to Sean for the next song, when I was listening, there's a there's a, a chord at like five minutes and fifty seconds in. There's a, a tempo section into the retardando before picking back up. And it was, it's like this massively stacked chord and you hear it and it's just like, it, it hits you like a wave. It gave me chills, it was so cool. <laughs> um, and with that, we shall move on to song numero due for which I will pass to Sean. Sure, song number due, thank you Hunter, is All I Need from, well, the man, JC. Um, Jeanette. <laughs> ah, yes, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I made that. I made that reference yesterday, and it worked. But yeah, <laughs> whatever. Um, Jeanette, my first question goes to you for this song. Um, there's a transcription online that mentioned the tempo is uh, 
yes. that is that is hilarious <laughs> what what is something to think about with this what is what do you sort of think about when i say something like that well if i saw a piece of music a piece of classical music any music that i was performing written at that tempo i would be scared first of all um i wouldn't know what to do really i mean i don't think i've ever tried to play at a tempo in between two numbers one number away from one another but i would feel like okay there this was thoughtful this was intentional and i have to follow this exactly because why else would someone write that or it's just a joke right and how big of that is a change mike you can add in if you want but how big of a change is that point too indiscernible to the human ear i think <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that i that it really makes a difference when listening um right. i think it's right. just like another easter egg <laughs> yeah and i think it might not make a difference to us but jacob collier works on a different level from our brains well, i'll only speak for myself he's somewhere else like eon smarter when it comes <laughs> to music than i am and so i can't pick up on it but maybe to him that that's like a, a very large difference also at the same time i think that becomes true with a lot of pop songs you hear on the radio if you try and transcribe them and figure out exactly what their tempo is a lot of times they kind of fall in between a tempo so it might just be completely irrelevant <laughs> sure sure or maybe that's what he wants you to think exactly <laughs> he, he is a mystery <laughs> uh michael sort of staying with that same theme of the groove the groove is established so hard in the beginning and it just pumps its way through the song which is just exactly what i think the bass really lays down really successfully in the song especially through the slapstick that is sort of mm -hmm. seen in the song that is just so successful um for those who don't really know how to sort of establish a groove and to sort of think about how one is created how does he done what how does he create one here and how is he so successful in doing so well this is this song is kind of his first breakthrough into pop music uh, everything he did beforehand he was exploring EDM, jazz, folk music, and those were uh, his first two Jesse albums um, was folk music and I can't remember what the first one was now, but the third one was much more geared towards EDM and pop. And so this song, I think, is uh, I'm hoping that it can kind of change the game in pop music and he just adds so much complexity to it. But what you're saying about um, establishing a groove, I think you don't have to, so often we listen to a groove and we want to feel hits on one and three or two and four, something like that. Um, but I think in his case, he very successfully uses syncopation um, to uh, imply a groove. Right. Um, and I think as humans, we're just trained to feel groove. Um, I think that groove exists like everywhere in the world around us and he's very good at kind of taking those from the world and incorporating them into his music right. so it's it's just like a very natural listening experience right and, and we'll get to that when we get to in the bone uh in in my bones that one of Jeanette's uh top 10 songs from a few weeks ago yeah um and i think he just establishes it so well and also in regard of music in, in this sort of same vein, he does crazy things with reharmonization and modulation. Um, the modulation in this, in this song is ridiculous. It is just insane. Um, there's a lot of really high, like technical compositional tools that he's using. 
um, Jeanette gave you the tough task of trying to explain to the listener what he's trying to do. I hope that's okay. Can you maybe try to narrow down what he's trying to do with those modulations? I think he's just, it's all about expectations again. Like you're listening to that song and you might expect a modulation if you know what a modulation is. <laughs> but like, okay, I'll use this example. When I'm listening to songs on the radio, I don't know them most of the time. And I will just start harmonizing for fun because most pop songs, you can just do that. You just, you know what to do, you know where it's going. And in this, I remember hearing it for the first time and my natural inclination is to try to harmonize, at least vocalize what a harmony would sound like. And I was all over the place. Like when there were modulations, I was not ending up in the same spot. It just wasn't my intuition. But now that I know it and listen to it, it's like, yeah, of course that's where it's going. Right. Uh, Michael, you can get on this too if you want to talk about microtonality, because I know he uses that to his advantage. Yeah. And that, that for me was the most exciting thing about the song. The first time I listened to it, I didn't know um, any of that microtonality that went into it because when we're trained in Western classical music, we're not trained to listen for those things because those notes to us do not exist. Um, but it's the second chorus of the song. I think it modulates, so what is it, E half sharp? Yeah, it's E half sharp. It modulates to E half sharp. That's not a key that, <laughs> you hear or have heard for the past 220 years at least right. so when he all of a sudden it comes in i remember listening to it for the first time i didn't know that that was happening but i felt like some <laughs> comfort i was like nothing like everything is diatonically correct but everything feels very uncomfortable about this and then you kind of like settle out of it and it's he's able to kind of create this feeling with his music where you can like float and it's very strange. We, we had some, some thoughts on that for some of the other songs that we'll talk about today. Right. But um, I think that spot in particular was crazy. And then I, I went back and I watched his breakdown of how he built the song. And he's like, yeah, and I, I wanted to go to E half sharp here because it's just a little brighter and it's a little more exciting. <laughs> That's just insane. It's just insane. But it's true. <laughs> yeah. Every, I, everything he does compositionally he ultimately has a reason for it. Right. And he always achieves his reasoning or whatever goals he established by doing it. Like that right. section, it's it's brighter, it's more exciting. The listener's uncomfortable. And then when he settles out of it, you feel like you're just spinning. Right. Well, but it brings us back to why can't we play music in E half sharp? Why, why can't we play music in E half flat? You know, like mm. from a listener's perspective, who knows the difference? It's a feeling that you get. And even if you don't know music theory and if you don't have perfect or relative pitch and you don't know what a key center is, you're listening to something. And if it's an E flat, you might feel a certain way versus a major, you know, and you don't know that you're feeling a difference, but it's the same thing. So why don't we try it? <laughs> right. Yeah. I was going to say, Michael, because you have perfect pitch, I'm sure that made you feel uncomfortable. Oh, I actually don't. She's the one. Oh, okay. Okay. My bad. My bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we got to it, my shoulders just went up to my ears <laughs> <laughs> because it feels wrong and it, mm -hmm. it feels different, but right. now listening to it, I feel okay because I know what's happening and I know it's going to happen every time. <laughs>
So now that you hear it, Jeanette, are you used to being like, okay, now that I know what this sounds like, can I just say this is E half sharp? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And singing along with it, you think because you've never sang in a certain key, it's going to be weird. But I don't know, from your experience, does it feel any different from singing in another key? No, I like to challenge myself, though, like when he's modulating to E half sharp, I always try and sing those pickup notes right with him. And I'm always a little bit off because I feel like my voice hasn't been taught to sing those notes out of thin air. Once he's established the key though, it's, it's pretty comfortable because I sing out of tune all the time. So it's fun. <laughs> um, I was going to ask this song basically ends, but it disappears. Like the song just sort of dissipates and it sort of feels like it just kind of like kind of sucks itself to the ground. Um, we've had another guest on who says that music never sort of ends. Is that the case for this song? Do you feel like it just truly ends or does it continue? I think it ends when you're ready for it to end. Like, are you still singing the groove after it's over? And I think that's the point of it. Right. And I think that's the point of a lot of music that ends in that kind of way where it feels like the musicians are leaving the room one at a time and you're still there and you can hang for as long as you want. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a perfect analysis. I was thinking the exact same thing. Like, if you end that song, you end the groove. But by fading out, the listener gets to decide when the groove ends. I mean, I'm literally thinking about the song in my head right now, and I'm like bopping a little bit. I, I can. <laughs> it's oh, it's just so infectious. But I I think that if you end that song, then it's kind of like oh, that's over. Let's move to the next song. Right. Whereas if you fade out, it just keeps going. Right. Um, I'm going to pop over to, to the next song. Um, Hunter, I'll only give it to you unless you sing the riff that goes along with those three notes. The three the three, uh, three words in that sentence. All night long. All night long. I'm drawing a blank on it right now. But you wouldn't want to hear me sing anyway. I most certainly do not have perfect pitch. <laughs> There's a reason I'm a, a clarinetist. No, that's not true. You know, they always say you should be able to sing, but not this voice. I basically sound like Squidward with a nasal cold. <laughs> I always tell my students, you, you, I, I always feel bad, you know, you're listening to me all day long, you must want to throw yourself out the window. Um, <laughs> Hunter, come on, man. I know. Anyway, all, speaking of all night long, um, do you think, because obviously he very much, it, the songs he chooses to... Uh, the songs he chooses to rework, they seem all over the place, and yet maybe there's a common theme. Do you think that he's drawn to a particular type of song that he wants to work with? Um, do you think he has like a type? The songs that he reimagines, covers, whatever you want to call it, are all so popular and famous. It's like mm -hmm. such a bold move to take them so far because we're used to hearing them in a certain way. I mean, Moon River, All Night Long, we'll talk about Here Comes the Sun. It's it's just bold to reimagine those and say, I'm gonna go for it and here it is. And so you think that's that's hit the, what he looks for? He looks for the popular songs to change them intentionally? Yeah, yeah, I think so because it's really difficult to do that without just saying, you know, I'm gonna do an acoustic cover of this or a pop cover no he's totally re-envisioning it mm -hmm. and it's not like the staple i'm going to do this 
focus on ukulele and make it sound, you know, I don't know, <laughs> modern. Um, this The tune, obviously, because that's when it's from, has a very uh, late 70s, early 80s vibe to it, even in his uh, covering of the song. How do you think he keeps the Lionel Richie style of it while still making it sound him? Because it does sound very him. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I mean, obviously he collaborated with Take Six on the song. So he still kind of kept them in the fold, which definitely helps in terms of establishing that 70s, 80s yeah. vibe. Um, but I think he's also very well informed of all time periods. Um, I think he has a great understanding of the history and the culture and the music. And all of those things help you perform a piece the way it's supposed to be performed or a song the way like he draws his roots from Bach right but nothing he does sounds like Bach but he has an understanding of it so he can go back and play Bach exactly he has a right great understanding of the 70s and 80s so he can go back and do that music um and I think we run into that a lot in our culture today is you need to understand the origins of your music the reason it was written where it was written the context under which it was written the those all play huge parts in the way we make music and the way people can connect to our music too. Mm -hmm. Can you think of, I mean, this sort of a diversion, but can you think of anyone else that really does that well, or does he stand out uniquely among them all? That's a really tough question. <laughs> I mean, I think the fact that nobody immediately comes to mind. <laughs> Says a lot. Yeah, it speaks strongly of him. Because he's he's not only covering the songs, to me, he really makes them his own songs. Exactly, like, right. Like his Moon River is not Moon River. If if somebody, if like, if my grandma asked to listen to Moon River, I would not put on Jacob Collier's Moon River because I know that that's not what she wanted. <laughs> Although she would want to hear it. And same thing with All Night Long, you know, like it's not the same song by any means. It's very Jacob Collier. Um, and I, I think he kind of brings it very much to the 21st century while also staying rooted in the origins of the music. Well, yeah, and I, my analogy that I have, and I think you'll both appreciate this, is Disney movies because <laughs> Walt Disney, it's in his will that he wanted Disney movies to be not only recreated but reimagined every so often because now there's a new audience and how are you going to keep something alive so i think did he really yeah and and i think jacob collier is doing a similar thing because people of our generation actually might not know any of these songs that we're talking about they might not know all night long like they might not know moon river and so now i'll be interested to see if if young people are saying oh yeah i know moon river that's a song by jacob collier you know, just like they think the live action Mulan is the original Mulan. <laughs> right. It's so funny. Like you, you were like on the same wavelength as what I was going to say, which was going to be, do you think that if he achieves a, a greater mainstream popularity, will we see an increase in interest in those classic songs that he's reimagining? I hope so. <laughs> fingers that's, crossed that's what, that's what i've been saying about him for so long i i believe this with all my heart i think he is our generation's bach mm -hmm. i i think that he has an opportunity to change 
the future of music um, because he is so outside the box, um, but also done so successfully in a way like we were talking about earlier with the layers. Everybody can relate to each one of those layers. Um, and so I, I think and I hope that as he collaborates with more mainstream artists, his music becomes more mainstream. If you go, I've never been, but I've watched a lot of YouTube videos of them. But if you go to a Jacob Collier live concert, everybody there pretty much is an avid musician. Mm -hmm. His his audiences are so well-rounded when it comes to music and he's actually able to play the audience. He'll like make a gesture and this side of the audience knows saying this line this way. And then he can literally create music out of the audience um, and so I think that that's a, that's a really cool thing and kind of contributes to the community of music in general. Um, and so I, I hope that that kind of culture can permeate into the other realms of music because mm -hmm. he has his foot in orchestral music. He has his foot in pop music. I mean, the guy's got more feet than anyone should. <laughs> he's, got, he's got him in every single realm. But there is, you know, one thing that you said that's important, I think, is that most you said that the audience of the concert are are mostly musicians right so not to say that the the common person wouldn't i don't, I don't mean common as like oh you you know you plebeian sir um but <laughs> the non-musician the they need to be exposed to that in order for him to be able to have that lasting effect you know what i mean um and the real trick is how do you get the non-musician to listen to his music and, and have that same reaction, which is where a lot of people who have been, maybe not as revolutionary, but other people who have had good ideas have faltered because they could sell their idea or they could make people appreciate it in the music community, whether it's from an academic standpoint or not, but then it gets lost on the masses. So that's more of like a, I guess, a commercial problem, but. Well, yeah, I, I was going to say it brings up an important point of why does he make music in the way that he does? And I, I don't think I've ever seen him answer this question, but like, who is he making music for? And I think if you were to ask that to a musician, a non-musician, anybody who consumes music, they're like, oh, well, it's for people to listen to. But for him, it's like, is he creating art for musicians, for people that understand what he's doing? Is he creating it for himself? Um, is he, I'm sure it's a combination of things, but like how important is it that a non-musician, a non-classically trained musician um, understands what he's doing? Is it important? Like, is it enough for him that musicians are going to his concerts and consuming his music and understanding? Is it important at all that anybody understands? I don't really right. know. That's a very good point. And you might even say that music is in his bones. So with that, John. <laughs> That's a great segue. Thank you, Hunter. Um, in my bones. We're talking about in my bones. Jeanette, this was one of your top 10 songs. Uh, now, is it your favorite out of the top 10 that we have on this list? That's a hard question. <laughs> I think it's my favorite right now. Right now. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'll say. <laughs> right, right this moment. Right this moment. Okay. It is my favorite. Okay. All right. Now cool. it's not. <laughs> um, Michael, there's a really clear way of how he talks through his music. And he really does speak 
almost like his lyrics and it's visibly i mean like i think that's another aspect that we'll definitely get to um later in the podcast about like his lyrics because they're definitely great um but uh what what does it say about about him as as the performer to just be able to sing but also hear his own lyrics can you rephrase the question sure yeah sorry <laughs> no it's okay i think i may have made it more complicated than it needed to be um i i find that he sort of talks when he sings and i think oh. that his lyrics can be heard that way um i'm yeah. not sure if you agree or not yeah no i i i totally understand that i think he really believes his lyrics and he's i've seen interviews with him and he, he talks about when he's writing lyrics he doesn't just write like whatever generics on, he doesn't write on whatever generic subject he wants to talk about. The, the lyrics that he writes are very poignant um, and everything has a purpose. Right. And so I think that then when he ends up singing them, it sounds very natural. Um, and he loves to write down words. He, he, he keeps a journal where he writes down words that he likes and then decides to fit them into songs. And so a lot of his lyrics are kind of strange in that way because he's fitting in these kind of weird words <laughs> right but um when he does that it, it kind of brings his voice into it because right. he's saying what he wants to say he's not writing about um a, a generic subject right right Jeanette do you want to agree disagree how do you feel about this yeah I this song is interesting because I have listened to it so many times and I'm still not exactly sure what he's talking about. <laughs> like each section to me feels like it could be its own song. Um, the lyrics and the music, of course. I mean, he does that a lot in his music. It's kind of all over the place in a good way. Right. But, you know, it sounds like parts of it are a love song. Then there's like parts of it that are maybe geared towards uh the government <laughs> and there are parts of it that are right totally platonic and about dancing and grooving so right but but i think each section fits with the music and i'm wondering i'm wondering how he composes if he writes music first or if he writes lyrics first right yeah um because that's usually the chicken or the egg isn't i was the, just gonna say that that is so creepy Wow, I'm the, the age-old because <laughs> I think I think that's a good question, question to think about. I think that um, I I mean honestly, you guys may be disagree or agree with me on this, but I feel like the the lyrics are sort of um, just added on after he writes his masterpiece, and I feel like they're just kind of like a thought. He's like, "This works, that works." I'm not sure you guys feel the same way. I think for this song, I would agree with that, and he seems just based on how he is to think about the music first. Right. Um, I think, like I said earlier, for the song, the lyrics really fit with all the musical sections. So I, yeah, I'm gonna go with music then lyrics for this one. Sure, sure. Um, and to both of you, this is sort of an open-ended question. Like again, the song happens, it ends. How do you immediately feel afterwards? Because I always feel just something had just swooped over my head or just looking at a plane just flying over my head. What do you guys think about that? I got to kind of take a breath at the end of this song. There's like so much happens. It's like my head's just kind of spinning by the end. 
and it's like it ends and you're like whoa <laughs> wait a second like you just went through like 20 time zones in five minutes that's right. crazy yeah but the thing is i immediately started over <laughs> and i'll do that like three times so it never feels like it ends until i'm ready for it to end <laughs> that's very true um i'm gonna pop over to the next song to hunter uh hunter take the hideaway yeah so uh the first 40 seconds are like very difficult to find a rhythm with and would you say that this is characteristic of him because we had someone who talked about him briefly i think it was yesterday um where they said that they have a hard time finding a rhythm particularly they were listening to flintstones but they said once they found the groove it was more enjoyable but like the beginning of this one of hideaway is very sort of fluid yeah so, I, so do you think that's his, like his characteristic i yeah i think that a lot of that shows us just how smart he really is um because in that he feels a groove mm -hmm. i do not feel a groove but he knows <laughs> there and he, he's done interviews where he talks about he he can hear um this doesn't apply to this tune necessarily but it's the same idea he can hear different percentages of a swing rhythm so like what we might hear is da 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 as mm -hmm. a swing rhythm so two triplets and then one triplet red as eighth notes um he can hear like a 72 percent swing and he can demonstrate that so it swings a little bit less and it's a little bit more uncomfortable it doesn't fall into a box he can hear um, an 86% swing. And I, I definitely recommend you, you, there's a YouTube video where he demonstrates this like on a new show, I think. Um, but he was like, you use different percentages for different purposes. If you want it to feel a little more energized, you use a harder swing. If you want it to be more relaxed, you can back off it a bit. It all just depends on what you want to be hearing in the moment. And I think that that's a really interesting concept that the things that I hear when I am writing music they all fit into a box of Western classical music because that's what I know and that's what I was raised on. And that's 100% a flaw. And I think it's a real gift for him that he doesn't have those constraints. He quite literally has no constraints. He can hear an infinite number of notes and that's why he's able to sing in microtonality so easily. Mm -hmm. I don't hear those notes. And so I think that he has a tremendous gift to be able to hear rhythms that we don't hear because we've never been exposed to them and hear pitches that we don't hear because we've never been exposed to them. A lot of his music too, um, he has a deep understanding of rhythms from all parts of the world. So I think at the start of um, All Night Long, the, the rhythm that he uses, he's actually using a bucket of spoons for that rhythm. Um, the rhythm that he's doing there, I believe, don't quote me on this, um, I haven't fact-checked it, but uh, I believe it comes out of Ghana, um, and he learned this rhythm, and so he then incorporated it into his music, but it's uncomfortable to me because I've never listened to Ghanaian music, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I think he has so much to teach us <laughs> about music. It certainly seems that way. I mean, just from the, the snapshots you get of his styles in these songs. Um, he, one thing he also does, and I was having a conversation with this, not about him, but about this concept in general, is he's always, his range is always jumping in order to get the, the sound that he wants. 
and he's always in and out of his falsetto. And for a while, that concept was not very well accepted, particularly amongst male vocalists. Like, you know, male vocalists could use their, in pop music anyway, could use their falsetto every now and then, but to constantly be bouncing from it, it, it was, like I said, frowned upon. Do you think this is a more accepted practice now? Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I think it's more accepted by the listener, mm -hmm. um, less accepted in the industry itself. Um, okay, interesting. We hear some of it, like John Legend uses his falsetto a lot. Sam Smith uses his falsetto. Yeah. Um, but it's, it, I don't know, it's kind of monochromatic to me. They're just exploring one other color, right? I think Jacob uses it intentionally to change through a whole rainbow of colors right. uh, and it it can change how you how you perceive the music so yeah I, I i think i mean as a listener i enjoy hearing it i think it's cool um but in the industry the pop music industry i think it's it's not necessarily encouraged because everybody loves screaming <laughs> yeah. i love that belt voice yeah and in pop music i mean a lot of it is is one note you know it's not that's its intention mm -hmm. like you feel a certain way for the majority of the song and it feels comfortable and with his singing and all of the um the other instruments that he plays but his voice especially it feels like a piano to me you know mm -hmm. it feels like he can he can move up and down it in whatever ways he chooses and i think why not explore everything that he has to offer in one song versus that one note kind of feel mm -hmm. Oh, that's, that's a good point. I mean, because again, this is something people probably don't think about if you're the, if you're the everyday listener, because why would you? You'd have no reason to think about it. You know, your song comes on the radio, you either like it or you don't. But again, as musicians, I think we tend to, we tend to think about this. Um, and since we were talking about his voice, this is more of a superficial question, but do you think his voice fits him? <laughs> I, it took me a while to like his voice <laughs> when I first heard it. Did it? Yeah, because when I first heard his music, he was not singing on it. I heard him improvising at the piano. I heard him playing all sorts of funky string instruments that I'd never heard before. Um, and then he started to sing and I was like, whoa, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and I thought it's amazing what he can do, kind of how I feel about country music, like we talked about on my episode um, <laughs> like I can appreciate that it's happening I can appreciate the skill it takes but it wasn't for my ears but then I felt like the more I listened to it I fell more in love with it because I appreciate it for what it is and Sean I think that, that goes back uh -huh. to what you were saying about how when he sings it feels like he's speaking almost and I, I think that I, I also did not like his voice at the start um because again, it's unfamiliar, right? When people sing in Western classical music, they sing. There's nothing about it sounds spoken unless it's opera and they're doing recitative. But Jacob's voice, when he sings, it sounds like he's speaking. Um, he also just has an absurd range. Well, and yeah. To, to, hear, to hear all that is kind of overwhelming. Mm -hmm. 
And it's uh, not to not to change topics, but you mentioned like the various instruments he plays. How many other artists would add an imbira and an accordion in the same song? Like, you know, the little ding, 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 ding thing yep. that he plays, the imbira. And the, of course, like randomly, I was watching the, the video of this song of him like doing it. I guess it was the, the music video. And then all of a sudden there he was in the middle playing the massive accordion with himself behind him. And there was like, I don't know if it was a dulcimer, I don't think it was a dulcimer, but some other odd string instrument, mandolin on one side, guitar on the other. I was like, this is, this is crazy. Yeah, he, uh, again, I think that's just him being able to go outside the box. Like when, when you listen to rock music, you know, you're going to hear drums, guitar, bass, vocals, keys. That is kind of the basis of a rock band. When you hear folk music, you know, you're going to hear guitar, bass, banjo, maybe mandolin, maybe violin or fiddle. Um, but it, kind of going back to what we were talking about, about how he doesn't necessarily compose his music ahead of time. A lot of it, he just sits in front of the computer, plays it through and then thinks, oh, this would sound awesome here. I think that that's what happened with this song at the end. He's like, oh, accordion would sound great here. To me, I would never think of putting accordion in that because it doesn't fit into the box of the style of piece that I'm writing. But when it comes in, I think it's beautiful and I, I think it fits perfectly. So why should we contain ourselves mm -hmm. to the tradition? Yeah, it's very true. Sometimes it takes, you know, the, the exceptional mind to just think of things that we wouldn't and maybe, you know, Maybe it does make sense to us when we hear it, but we would have never thought of it. You know, we've all had those moments where it's like you're listening to somebody else talk and you're like, that makes total sense. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> or you see them, I don't know, solving a math problem on the board or something. And you're like, I'm okay. I'm just an idiot. Cause I didn't, I would never have thought to do that. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just, it brings it to a new level and clearly he's on a different one. Yeah, it's true. And actually going back to, um, to the song all i need i watch he does breakdowns of how he created some of his songs he does it with moon river all i need uh all night long kind of the big ones that he's done um, and in all i need he was talking about how he, he had a deadline that he had to meet to release the single um and so he was working on it straight up to the last minute and he was up for like three days straight working on it then the wow. night before it was supposed to be released he went to bed and he just wasn't happy with one part of it. And he was like, I, I just don't know what to do here. And then he was falling asleep and immediately he jumped up. He's like, I know exactly what this song needs. There's one chord. He adds a sound of bubbles, <laughs> like, like super, like in the background, you might not even notice it at first, but then you hear it and it's like, yeah, it did need bubbles. Why didn't I know that it needed bubbles, you know? And it's like, man, to have such a creative <laughs> mind, it's, it's just really amazing that he's able to think of these things and have them be so well received by the public. Cause I think a lot of new music people are like, Oh, this would sound really cool. But then to the general public, it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, they, they always said if, if Mozart were alive, he would be like the biggest proponent of synthesizers ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just, his mind I feel like is very similar to, to Collier's in the, the creativity aspect of it for the time, at least yeah. that he was working, you know, um, so you never know, like it's sometimes with the times plus the creative mind, just these things work, they hear it or it's in their head and they hear it. And 
things sort of fall into place. And speaking of falling into place, um, we've perfectly set ourselves up for the second half. So we're gonna take a quick break. Um, and Michael, if you would be so kind as to read the handles. I would love to. Make sure to check out at MusicSpeaks underscore pod on Twitter, MusicSpeaks underscore podcast on Instagram, MusicSpeaks podcast on Facebook, and at MusicSpeaks podcast on TikTok. Meraviglioso, wonderful. And we will be right back. We're back with my friends Jeanette and Michael, and the next song we're going to talk about is Best Part. Ironically, this song was on Michael's list when I interviewed him maybe like 70 or 60 episodes ago, which is very strange for me. <laughs> um, but I do want to start by talking about the chord progression that is sort of written into the beginning of the song. And I listened to the beginning of him just performing this on piano, and the song starts with this A flat to this C minor seven with a G moving to F minor 11, again, repeating. And then the final penultimate chord of the intro ends on this E major 13 sharp 11. So we really do get to this not diatonic sound, but like, Michael, how would you want to describe it? I, I think he's kind of a master again of going outside the box. And he hears resolutions differently than we are taught to hear them. Right. Um, and so I, I think that that's a lot of what he's doing there is kind of preparing you for what you're going to hear for the rest of the song and making you just getting your attention. I think for, for me, like that's what it does to me. It just gets my attention immediately. And it's like, Ooh, I should, I should pay, I should pay closer attention to this because something interesting is happening. Um, I think, it's very easy to listen to music passively, right. um, especially when you know what to expect. So like when you listen to Mozart or when you listen to Brahms, um, a lot of that is so expected um, right. just because it's, I don't, I don't want to call it vanilla, um, but I kind of just did. So I'll leave it. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's an attention grabber and it's a, right. it's a really good way to, to kind of bring you into his realm. And, and you had told me that this was originally Daniel Caesar's song. Yes. And then Jacob had taken it and reharmonized re it by himself, which he usually does. Um, <laughs> what was the difference? Have you listened to Daniel's and sort of thought about the difference that Jacob does with this too? Yeah. Um, do you want to go for that one? Yeah, I think I didn't notice like a huge um, difference in the harmonies. Like I didn't feel like it it changed that much. I just felt like the groove was the, the, the main change. I felt like that it was, it felt like two completely different songs just based on the groove. Right. Yeah. I, I did have it pulled up here. I do want to take a quick listen. Uh, um, Jacob, please don't sue me. I'm just going to play a little, little itty, itty bit of your music. So I'm just going to just, cause I do want to talk about it. So here's a little bit of the beginning. You don't know, babe. 
hold me You kiss me so sweet It's the sweetest thing And it don't change You're the coffee that I need in the morning. You're the sunshine in the rain when it's pouring. Won't you give yourself to me and give it all? I do want to. I have to stop there because if I played the rest of it, I would be definitely using all of his music. But um, there's something that he does here which is just amazing, which is. Uh, extended techniques on the piano, which is the the slurring between notes using his arm and using those um, diatonic or sort of like, um, I'm not sure what the right word would be because as, as a drum player, you, uh, you would want to say maybe partials or something as something like that within sort of a range. Or, I mean, with that same thing that he's doing with the, with the plucked piano, like he kind of goes in the front of it and he goes, which is really cool, I think, which is such a cool effect to do. Um, there's so many really cool things that he does in this version that I, that I had pulled up. Um, is there anything that I'm not talking about that you feel that should get more attention? I think the style and the groove reminds me of stride piano a lot. And it's like, a, it's the singing is very poppy, but then the style reminds me of, uh, just like old timey stride piano. I don't know if you're familiar with Hazel Scott, but she was a great singer and a jazz pianist. And like, it just reminds me of her. She would just be, you know, going back and forth with the stride. And then you just get these amazing chromatic fills with all these notes that make it sound just like otherworldly. And he really mimics that there. Right. And Michael, we talked about this when you came on about the, the meaning of best part and what that actually means. It means you are the coffee that I need in the morning, the, the tea that I drink during the day. It's something that's just something gets you through the day. And I think it's just something that just helps uh, the Jacob just sort of feel like he's grounded. Um, what is that? And uh, do you sort of relate to that at all? Yeah, well, so I think that going off what Jeanette was saying with um, the differences between the two versions, Daniel Caesar's version of it to me is like a beautiful love song. Right. Jacob's version is like a convicted, I really love you song. <laughs> you know, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like Daniel Caesar's was like the love song in a music musical. And then Jacob Collier came back and did the reprise like at the end of the show. And it was like, yes, this is it. Like, it's more of like a declaration. I think of Michael Scott. Right. I didn't say it, I declared it. <laughs> Right. Um, what yeah. a good analogy. <laughs> but, and I think that that's what we get because harmonically it's the same. Right. But then his embellishments, that's where it's like, you feel like you're in a whirlwind, especially when he's doing those crazy chromatics. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it's, it just feels like you're being overwhelmed with that love that, right. that Daniel's describing with the lyrics. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it reminds me of like, <laughs> this is really stupid, but like, how birds mate with each other. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen anything like this on the Discovery Channel, <laughs> but it's kind of like, look at this, look at what I can do. And it's right. like such a proud statement and it's totally in your face and non-apologetic. <laughs> it's like it's like the birds of paradise in a way where they are trying to show you, like, you ever seen that 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 Disney documentary where they, like, they show 
how like these elaborate like, these birds like build these like crazy houses and then they get rid of all the leaves and they try to make it look nice for their uh partners yeah i think i think it's just so interesting and just sort of just like that what you just said Janet. i think that's a great analogy um and Jeanette, I want to leave you with this last question before I let it overgrow to Hunter. Um, what or who is the best part of Jacob Collier's life? <laughs> I feel like music would be the obvious answer, but instead sure. I'm going to go with him not having to change out of his pajamas is the best part of his day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd have to say so too, or his uh, unicorn hat or his uh, unicorn onesie, I'd have to say. For the Crocs. <laughs> oh, that's right. You know, and we actually had a guest on yesterday who said, like, he just did an Instagram live of just him talking to a Croc. <laughs> <laughs> and it was successful. I mean, like, you had, like, a me almost a million people watching, and it was very entertaining, uh, which is interesting. Um, Hunter, are you ready to take some every little thing she does is magic? Indeed. All right, so... I'm not a big like 80s music person, but I always like this song. And um, to you guys, what stands out about this song? Um, were you a fan of the Police's version before he covered it? I love the Police's version. I grew up listening to it. Yeah. My parents were huge fans of the Police, still are. And so that was one of the CDs that we would always listen to in the car on road trips because I love that song. Um, what are some of their other ones? Uh, Message in a Bottle. Is that the Police? Mm -hmm hope so yeah but i just i remember listening to that album growing up uh, and i was actually at the gym when i first heard every little thing she does is magic uh what is that jesse volume one i think i think that's what it said yeah so um that album had just come out and i was at the gym the next day and so i just put it on to listen to and uh that song came on and I was like, whoa, you know, like a serious nostalgia moment. And it's it's just like Jeanette was saying before, he goes mm -hmm. after the popular songs and makes them his own while still leaving everything that you loved about the original. And so it took me back to my childhood, but also kind of encapsulated all the music that I learned in my later years of life, my later years being 23 but, but you know it's it's like I felt like it was kind of like symbolism for my life in a way it's like mm -hmm. you have the basics and then here's everything that you've learned added to it um so I remember that day I just put it on repeat and I was so amped for the rest of my workout I was just like I was ready to go <laughs> you're just like yes let's go <laughs> how are you Jeanette I forget what the original question was after all that. <laughs> uh, well, it, was, <laughs> it was sort of a two-part question where I said, um, what stands out to you about the song? And were you a fan of the song prior to his covering it? Yeah, kind of like Michael said, it's one of those songs that I remember my parents playing on CDs. And it's like a super easy listening kind of song. Um, I don't know that I even knew it was the police. <laughs> But I, when I heard his version, I was like, oh yeah, of course I know the song and I know all the words to it somehow. And God knows how I know it. I feel like it's a song that's played in supermarkets. So maybe that's <laughs> how I kept up with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll just agree with everything Michael said. <laughs> it's like to the default, Michael. Um, he gets this though. I mean, you got to sing the note for him. So, you know, he gets to be the, the police expert. <laughs> 
Um, so my other question with this song is just like he did with All Night Long, uh, he manages to keep, like Michael said, he keeps the groove of the original version um, and the, the feel of it, um, or, or rather maybe the sentiment behind it. Um, what do you think the biggest change he makes between the original and this song is? What defines this as his? And we talked a little bit about this with the other song. Um, I think his rhythmic changes and his uh, reharmonization of the beginning and the end, I think mm -hmm. that changes it a lot, as well as um, the way he kind of changes the instrumentation. There's a lot more brass in this one. Um, it's more, it feels more to me like dance music. There's a lot more texture, a lot more colors incorporated in the percussion. Um, so I, I think of it as like an enhanced version of the original. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's the police on steroids yeah well, yeah it feels more like i want to dance and not i want to walk through a supermarket <laughs> yeah <laughs> you really have the supermarket image in your head don't you <laughs> i really i can't get it out of my head like i really do remember hearing this on multiple occasions in supermarkets <laughs> i have this very distinct image of like and this is really specific so I don't think anyone else is going to share this this image, but like my my family are fans of it too. But I always have this image of like the radio on in the middle of summer when I was younger, and like it's just playing while we're in the pool. I don't know; it's just something I have in my head because um, we always listened to the radio when we were in the pool. I don't know why. Um, let's unpack that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's delve into the the psychological repercussions that might have. Um, don't listen to radio while you're in the pool physically, though. Do not take it into the pool with you. That's bad. <laughs> Could cause some serious problems. Um, the one thing that I'll say about this version of the song is that I love the way the groove changes when he says on, where it's like goes on, and then it just sort of everything cuts out and it has that floaty ethereal sound that he, the spacey kind of sound that he seems to like from some of the other ones. Um, but this is not the end, so now we will not stop as we go to the next song. Oh, wow, that was great. <laughs> not, no. That was a pit pitiful uh, excuse for a segue. <laughs> I'll just, like, throw myself into the road. Uh, no, so the next song is Don't Stop Till You Got Enough. No, I'm kidding. That was terrible. Um, Don't Stop Till You Got Enough. That's the actual name of the song. Um, I do want to listen to the beginning of the song because it is incredible. Let's just check a little bit of that out. Um, here we go. honestly gives me the biggest the most anxiety i've ever listened to a piece of music with ever <laughs> just because it um it has this very minimalistic sound to it and i i think honestly if i think of any music 
the contemporary music that I love, it probably has to be minimalistic because it's just so interesting. And he, he does it so well. Um, I can I can give this to both of you. Um, what is he doing and how can we make sense of how he's doing it successfully? I, I think what's so epic about this beginning is through the whole thing, you have doom, 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 and that's your groove right there. Everything else, if you strip that away, particularly in the in the first few measures, if you take out that repeated note, I think it's very difficult to find the groove. But he kind of dances around it, and that is kind of your your uh, sentry post. That's what the listener has to grab onto. Um, and so, yeah, Sean, I I completely agree with your analysis of it being minimalism. It sounds like Steve Reich to me. Um, you know. It sounds like, uh, what is that, piano phases? Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like to me. And what's actually happening, I, I don't know if you have the YouTube video pulled up or if you just have it on Spotify, but he's doing this on a player piano. So a lot of the music has already been programmed in. And so the sure. piano is playing itself while he's also playing along with it. And so for his brain to be able to basically fit into those rhythms is just kind of mind boggling to me. Right, right. Exactly to be so accurate too yeah Jeanette yeah and I mean I feel like the importance of a groove is you can tap your foot to it and I can tap my foot to that so I'm not really going to need to unpack it more than that but (laughs) (laughs) the beginning is so funny it's like a scale and it's like yeah okay this is what you know the piano to be and then you you don't expect for that groove to come in at all and then right. it starts happening and you're like, is this still a piano? What exactly is happening? How many people are playing this? Right. Um, and we, we talked about that too with him liking prepared piano. And that's a, a very introspective, but also a very acquired taste too. But I think he does it very effectively. I mean, definitely an acquired taste, but I feel like what he did at the beginning with the uh, muted strings, I think that my personal belief on music is if there's a groove, it's relatable. I think you can do pretty much anything around a groove. And that's why I love minimalism so much. You don't necessarily know what's happening harmonically or melodically, but you can groove to it, you know? And so I I think that that's what keeps the beginning effective. Right, yeah. Um, I do want to unpack this um, improv solo that he writes uh, here, if that's okay with both of you. Um, I did want to play maybe like 15 20 seconds of it because it's just so interesting so let's take a little listen of that and here is jacob collier i believe improvising over this section
yeah. I honestly think he crosses over within three genres of music within yeah. 30, 30 seconds, yeah. which is literally incredible. You have the minimalistic aspect that we talked about. We have maybe a Latin aspect of it that is added in at the end. And then you have this sort of like um, quasi um, Coltrane-ish sort of getting out of the changes, but successfully returning to them without even noticing it successfully. Um, So I hope maybe you guys had a chance to listen to it beforehand. Um, What is your interpretation from the solo and uh, how can we feel better as humans after the fact without feeling tremendous guilt? We haven't done that yet. (laughs) I think that's that's one of the beauties of his music. So often I listen, like I just listen to that solo and I just start laughing. I'm like, this, <laughs> it's just phenomenal. You know, like it, so music is tension and release, right? So when he goes outside of the chords and all of a sudden you're like, like this, like you, you don't know where you are. And then he brings it back and you're like, oh man, that was just awesome. It's the most amazing feeling to be taken on that tension trip and then just brought back into it. And he does it so easily and so suddenly, like like you're saying, he goes through three genres. He just kind of whips you around, but you're just along for the ride. And he's a great guide at doing that. He doesn't leave anybody behind when when he does his solos. I, I feel like he he whips you around, but you're always able to stay with him, which which I think is a, a real gift. Right. Yeah, you Jeanette? can you can still tap your foot and dance through the whole thing, and you don't lose any of that the entire time. Right. And I just wonder for our non-musician friends that would listen to this, like if they would even think anything of it, you know? Oh, it's a bunch of fast notes, but it's really amazing what he does. And it's still so nice to listen to and it doesn't feel chaotic somehow with all of the the crazy rhythms happening and the solo happening on top of that. It's just amazing. I it that leaves me speechless. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. And I think that goes back to that conversation that we had, Jeanette, about geniuses and what role do they have in our society? Like like we were talking about Lady Gaga the other day about like um, how much has she done and how many roles can she take? Like we talked about how she just, she wants to sing jazz, she can, she, she can sing jazz. If she wants to only sing pop and sing with Ariana Grande, that's all she wants to do. You give it to her because she, you know, how amazing of a musician she is, and you know, with Jacob, how amazing a musician he is, and the way he can just sort of take one idea and basically put it into one amazing and inspiring piece of music, which is just, I think, incredible. Um, we're getting too real here, and in fact, uh, let's get in the real early morning. Oh, so much better than mine, Sean. All right, so. For this song, um, it's very much like a, a mood piece. Like it, it really conveys this the sense I think that he's trying to. What elements of the song do you think really convey the picture or the ambiance of early morning, which obviously surface level is what the song is about. Does anything stand out to you? I think I was struck by this when I first heard it because it's it sounds like the most simple of his songs. Mm-hmm. Um, the melody is absolutely beautiful and it feels like something you can wake up and you're already listening to it and you can go back to Uh sleep and you're still listening to it and it kind of never leaves you interesting that's that's an it's a cool image right 
right of waking up it's already playing instead of like you wake up and put the song on mm-hmm. yeah how about you mike i think that's part of jacob's genius actually is the titles of his songs and the lyrics that he sings they actually match the music itself perfectly like best part it's a love song the the music underneath it it feels like love it doesn't sound pretty it feels like love same thing with hideaway it sounds concealed and it sounds protected and it sounds comforting and i think like Jeanette was talking about with this song it sounds like you're waking up I, it kind of embodies what the song is about which is something that i think is overlooked oftentimes titles come after the mm-hmm. music is written um but i feel like jacob's kind of evolve out of the music it's, that's a that's a good point because this goes back to um what we were talking about earlier i forget which song it was where we were saying chicken or the eggs you know lyric or music and you could have the music be written the lyrics and then like you said title comes even after that so because at the end of the day it's not about necessarily the the message because the message is often conveyed not through the lyrics although obviously on the outside it is but people listen to music because it makes them feel and that feeling often comes from the actual music itself right you know what i mean so that's that's interesting the the slow tempo to me you know really i think sets the mood right off the bat um and also the particular synth he's using i you know you hear that you've heard that before that that particular instrument but it always gives me the impression of like rain or dew drops which i think contributes to the the musical imagery that he's trying to paint there so that's just something i observed i don't know if any of the other instruments stand out to you or the or really anything else musically about it i think his voice does the best job of conveying it in this because I mean he still uses extremes he uses extremes in everything he does but it it makes you feel really at peace the entire time um which is rare for his songs Mm -hmm. and back to what you were saying before about what comes first the music or the lyrics or the lyrics or the song title um it I imagine he wrote the melody and he wrote the music and then said, what does this feel like? And then he wrote the title and then he wrote the lyrics. Mm. Yeah, could be. Um, and then with that, the last piece of this is what, what's the song talking about? Since, you know, this does seem to be the most um, lyrical, I guess, of the songs. Um, what message do you think he's trying to convey? I gotta say, I don't know the song well enough to necessarily talk about that. This is more Jeanette's song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm looking up the lyrics because I am notoriously bad with lyrics. I can remember any melody after I hear it, but the words I never care to remember, but I'm looking <laughs> and now I am remembering them. Um, but it's, it's beautiful. I'm going to read some of this like Sean did in our last podcast. Because I think it'll be really- oh, it's slam poetry time. Oh, slam, slam poetry time. Yeah, Jeanette, here we go. Go. So um, this is like the second verse. So <clears throat> she was a young girl. She was an old soul, as fair as the ocean, timeless and free. She was my mother. She was my daughter. She was my lover. She was everything an old friend could be. That's amazing. Wow. And now I'm mad at myself for not just knowing those <laughs> lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because the lyrics 
I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Like, of course, those should be the lyrics. And looking at the rest of the lyrics, it's like, of course, those should be the exact words that he chooses because that's what you're feeling when you're hearing this. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, you know, again, you know, the, the concept of music words together, it's a powerful combination and goes to show that, you know, a lot of songwriters, they, they are lyric, you know, they are poets. It's just, they, they often don't rely to, or they don't solely rely on the words. They add the extra emotion behind it of the music. So now when you go back, you have that sentiment associated with the, the lyrics that when you read them, they take on a whole nother meaning emotionally. Mm -hmm. All right, and with that, uh, we shall sort of get to the, the last, not culmination, but I guess the last song on your list, which really fits in with his popularity, you know, song popularity theme. John? Right. So the next song that we're going to listen or talk about is Here Comes the Sun, uh, written by the Beatles and now arranged by Jacob. Um, this has really come full circle, guys, because we really do get the sound of a nature soundscape in this song. I think um, I hadn't listened to it before. It had gotten me really excited to talk about because there's a lot of really great, beautiful moments in this song, especially when it starts, um, you can hear birds twerping and you can hear like some breeze, you know, and it's so um, alluring and it's just so nice. Um, and of course you have Dodie in the song and she makes everything great too. Um, and I think that's a great adage to the song. I, I really do want to listen to it, but I do, before we do, um, I need to ask both of you, um, what does nature add to the song? I think it puts you in the space of the song, um, just like we were talking about Jacob's music matches the titles. Um, obviously, he did not come up with this title. And he didn't come up with the melody. Um, but I think that his cover of the song kind of encapsulates the feeling of Here Comes the Sun even better than the Beatles did, dare I say it. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it it's relaxing and it puts you in that space. And when I hear that, I... I imagine and I feel like I can feel like a, an early summer day where you can just feel the sun hitting your clothes and you like feel that bit of warmth. That's that's kind of what what it, the feeling it gives me. Yeah. And when we're watching movies, especially you see these landscapes and there's always, always music, always music behind it. And when you're doing normal everyday things, people always say they wish that there was a soundtrack to accompany their lives. And that's exactly what this song is. It's that mm -hmm. moment of you're walking, I don't know, you're going through a hike, you get to the top of a mountain or you're, you're watching a sunrise. You can, feel, you can feel what's happening with the music. Right, yeah. Um, and Jeanette, to add to something that I think is very interesting in the song is there is this nice, uh, when the Beatles sing it, they have the end of their phrases go, it's all right. But in the song he goes, it's all right or something like that he goes up instead of going down which i thought which was a terrible way of describing what he was trying to do but i think that's something he sort of accomplishes when this in the song like he's able to add on to not just i think that's something he thinks of when he thinks of, of like happy music like it doesn't fall down it gets up you know yeah it seems that the downward motion of the beatles is like a resolution Right. And it seems the upward motion is 
we're going to keep going. Like we've talked about with a lot of his songs, it's like the possibilities are endless and we can go for as long as we want to. Right. Let's let's take a little bit of a listen to it. Um, and I, because I, I, I just sort of fell in, love, fell, fell in love with the song. I do want to take a little bit of a listen and here we go. So it really does play with that idea of that upward motion, which is unbelievably captive. And I think it, it, it just, it's so beautiful. Um, uh, I need to ask you this both, because um, there's an aspect of the song we haven't really talked about, which is Dodie, and she's another great artist that is added to this song. Um, what does Dodie really add to this song? I love Dodie. That this is the reason, I mean, I love this song. Um, and I love Jacob, but I chose this song personally because of Dodie. I think you don't, she's exactly who you want to sing the song to you. Right. Like she's exactly who you want to comfort you. Her voice sounds like clouds and it just sounds like happiness and sunshine. And so I think she is an amazing choice for this and no offense, Jacob, but I wish she sang the whole song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have to ask because this is such an interesting technique that he has is where he starts in this lower key and then he makes his way up to a major where the key actually is. He starts in D, but he plays around with this minor sound, but it it's not sad. It's just, it's nice. I'm not sure if you guys had felt the same way about the song where it might not make you feel like you're sad, but it's sort of comforting. It's not, I mean, it could be the acoustic guitar, which is obviously very relaxing but um what does that really add to the song and, and then to the build-up of the a major sound i think it kind of it, it puts you in the right mindset right you feel very comfortable and right. for me when i'm very comfortable i'm not necessarily happy i'm not necessarily sad i just am you know and to me this song sounds like particularly with the steel guitar and the mandolin it sounds to me like i'm I'm in Ithaca, I'm in a meadow. I can actually picture the field that, I, that I'm thinking about. In Ithaca, there's a field and you can just see everything from that field. The grass is tall, nobody's around, there are trees all around. You can see across to all the other hills. Um, and it, it, there's just like, it's a blissfulness, I think, that um, that, that kind of puts you in. The minor sound, it's like, you don't have to be happy. You don't have to be sad. You don't have to be anything. You can just exist. And I think that that's what's really comforting about this song. Right. So I want to thank both of you for being here today and to bring up this, this amazing, genuine, genius artist known as Jacob Collier. 
I'll, I'll say it again. JC, I don't really care who thinks <laughs> about the same thing, but I think he's as equivalent to, uh, and he'll be definitely talked about continually because of his amazing music making skills and uh, what he's bringing to the genre of music. Um, so, um, although we are not done yet, what I've decided to do was to pin you against one another to find oh. out who is the ultimate musician. <laughs> when I say ultimate musician, I mean classic FM, classic FM quiz. Uh, who knows music better? Oh, God. So when we take when we when we come back, uh, I will quiz both of you on who knows music better. So, <laughs> which I thought would be a good idea, and hopefully will not spark an argument after this podcast. Um, so stay with us. We will be right back. All right, and we're back. Uh, they've been fighting a lot since we came back from this uh, session. They've been like, I'm, I'm so ready to beat you in this. No, I'm kidding. Um, Michael, because you are the least recent guest, you can choose first. Would you like to go first or second? Uh, I would like to go first. Oh, okay. All right, there we go. Very bold. All right, Michael, this first question is, which of these is not the subtitle of a Haydn symphony? Is it horn signal, lament, tension, tragic, or mercury? I would say lament, tension. That is incorrect. It is actually tragic. I am very sorry. That's okay. I wouldn't have guessed that. That is A, okay. Moving right along. Uh, Jeanette, you ready? Yeah. <laughs> she said with disgust. <laughs> Jeanette, you crushed the last flute quiz that we gave you. But I know. I, I, I... <laughs> right, I did. <laughs> With flying colors, I might add. Um, which of Elgar's Enigma variations was partially inspired by a bulldog? Was it variation XI, GRS, variation 1, CAE, variation X, I, I believe that's, um, so we have variation 11, Variation one, variation 12, or variation four, which is known as uh, Nimrod. Uh, <laughs> can you repeat that one more time, please? Sure, we have variation 11, which is GRS. Variation one, which is CAE. Variation 12, which is BGN, or variation four, which is Nimrod. I'm going to go with GRS because when you say that out loud, it sounds like gers and that's a song, a sound that a dog makes. Okay. Let's find out. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Michael, here we go. Here's your next question. Uh, where was cellist Jacqueline Dupree born? Was it Cheltenham, Oxford, Cambridge, or Seren uh, Sester? It was Oxford. Right? It was Oxford? Yeah. That is correct. What? Moving right along. <laughs> Moving right along. Um, Jeanette, which conductor always appeared on podium while wearing a white carnation? Is it Sir Thomas Beechin? Was it Sir Malcolm Sargent, Sir Henry Wood, or Sir John Bar Bar Barbarioli? Uh, John Ravioli. John Barbaroli. Let's find out. 
That is incorrect. It was Sir Michael, sorry, Sir Malcolm Sargent. All right, here we go, Michael. You ready? How old was Giuseppe Verdi when he wrote his Requiem? Was he 50, 60, 70, or 80? Oh, man. I'm going to go with 50. 50. That is incorrect. He was 60 years old. 60 years old. You both are about one. All right, Jeanette, this one's for you. Here we go. What is the name given to the lower register of the clarinet's playing range? Is it the Kalamu, Thalamu, Shalamu, or Shalamar? Oh, I thought you were just pronouncing the same word incorrectly four times. <laughs> it's Shalamo. With, with an S or an or a C? A C-H. C-H. That is correct. You have one point above Michael. Here we Sean, go, Michael. you clearly never took French. <laughs> <laughs> That is correct. And he was in my Italian class, so I know that for a fact. <laughs> what did Benjamin Britten use to simulate raindrops in his opera for amateur musicians Noia Flood? Is it pipettes in buckets, empty baked bean tins, teacups on a string, or a typewriter? Um, I would say a typewriter. A typewriter. That is incorrect. It is teacups on a string. I'm very sorry. I'm very not sorry. looking good. Not very. Not looking good. Uh, here's the next question for Jeanette. Who wrote a piece called the Skittle Alley Trio? Was it Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, George Gershwin, Leonard Bernstein, or Antoine? I don't know how to say his first name. Antoine, Antonine. Antonine Dvorak. Um, I'll go with Gershwin. Let's go with Gershwin. That is incorrect. It was Mozart. Mozart, ah, Skittle Alley. Really? Yeah, truly, yeah. Uh, I believe, Jeanette, you still have two, and Michael, you have one. Here we go. In French opera houses, what job does the souffle have? Is it to encourage, is it encourage applause, prompter, first aider, or dessert, dessert chef? Uh, what was the first answer? To encourage applause. Yeah, that one. Encourage applause. That is incorrect. It is the prompter. That doesn't make sense. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. All right, here we go. Next question for Jeanette. Jeanette, what is Simon Rattle's middle name? Is it Dennis, David, Derek, or Daniel? Dennis, David, Derek, or Daniel? Daniel. Daniel. Pronounced uh, Daniel. That is incorrect. His middle name is Dennis. <laughs> 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 All right, Michael, here we go. What subtitle goes with Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta, The Pirates of Penzance? Is it The Witch's Curse, The Last I Loved a Sailor, The Slave of Duty, or The Peer and the Perry? Uh, B. The Last I Loved a Sailor, that is incorrect. It is The Slave of Duty. The Slave of Duty. Here we go. I'm never coming back on the show. All right. Oh, my goodness. Please come back. All right. Um, Jeanette, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Which composer wrote two piano concertos, one violin concerto, and one double concerto for violin and cello? Is it Beethoven, Brahms, Bach, or Brook? Beethoven. Beethoven. Wait, 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 wait. Brahms. Brahms. That is correct. You have three points now. Nice. Michael has a has to do some catching up. How Michael, many questions are there? There are twenty questions, Michael. <laughs> oh God! I thought there were five. <laughs> Michael. In which country was Delabez's opera Lacme set? Is it Ceylon, Burma, India, or Vietnam? Vietnam. Vietnam. That is incorrect. It was India. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. All right, here we go. Shoot the moon here, Sean. 
Um, here we go. Which of these which of these vehicles did not did Herbert von Karajan not appear with on the cover of one of his recordings? Airplane, boat, racing car, hovercraft. 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 That is correct. Hovercraft is correct. All right. <laughs> Michael, how many ballads did Chopin write? 4, 12, 24, 48. Ballads. Oh, man. Come on, come on. You can do it. Um, 24. 24. Jeanette, chance to steal. 12. Incorrect. It was four. He wrote four. All right. Here we go. Which of these actors has not played Beethoven on the screen, Jeanette? John Belushi, Gary Oldman, Ed Harris, Simon Callow. Ed Harris. Ed Harris. That is incorrect. It was Simon Callow. I'm very sorry. All right, Simon here we go. Callow? Si Simon Callow. Callow, Callow. My judge, bad, my bad. judge of American Idol. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. That is okay. Um, in Purcell's Dido and Aeneas, Michael, where is Dido queen of? Is she Carthage, Egypt, Troy, or Rome? Uh, Carthage. Carthage. That is correct. You are one point away from tying Jeanette. What a relief. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Jeanette, in which year did the Sydney Hop Opera House open? Is it 1971, 1972, 1973, or 1974? 1972. 1972. That is incorrect. 1973. Michael, chance to tie with Jeanette. Here we go. Which of these composers was given the title of Master of the Queen's Music? Does it W.S. Gilbert, Sir Walter Parrott, Frank Bridge, or Harold Dark? Sir Walter Parrott. That is correct. You have wow. tied with Jeanette. And Jeanette, this is your chance to win. Here we go. This is, is this for the last all, question? This is the last question for all the money. Here oh we go. Oh my gosh. Jeanette, here we go. I will, I will give Michael a chance to steal if you get this incorrect. Which of these artists did not perform with Luciano Pavarotti during his lifetime? Is it Cheryl Crow, Celine Dion, the Spice Girls, or Madonna? Madonna. Madonna. That is correct. You have beaten Michael <laughs> in the classic ultimate challenge of music. Well, guys, <laughs> that seems to be going around. <laughs> guys, uh, seriously, um, I know that was much more of a joke, but I do really appreciate you guys playing through that. And um, thank you, both of you, sincerely from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot to me to see both of you here. And I'm just so happy to share this space with you guys and talk about Jacob Collier today. Um, uh, I'm, again, lost for words for his music. And I'm so happy that you both were able to find a way to, to fix this into your schedule. So I, I'm really happy right now. And I'm so happy that you guys were able to make it here today. Yeah. Uh, lit, and I will pop it over to Hunter. Yeah, I, I, I reiterate everything Sean said, and I've been very privileged to get to know the both of you through this, so I appreciate you coming on and bearing with our antics. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> After that quiz, we're just going to run for the hills. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you both so much for having us. It's great to see you both again. Um, 
we love doing the show so hopefully we'll be back maybe a different quiz next time <laughs> you got it something that i can win yeah something like <laughs> a little more difficult would be great <laughs> <laughs> all right guys we'll see you next time hopefully talk to you soon stay all right, safe thank you thank you Thanks, Jeanette and Michael, and next time we'll have return guest Valerie Nizzullo. And I'm your host, Sean Arconis, my friend Hunter Zagona. He's over there. And uh, keep listening to what you love. Mm-hmm.